walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hi everyone, welcome to the Camino Podcast. My name is Dave Whitson and I'm talking to you from rainy Portland, Oregon, USA, where it's been raining like mad for the better part of two weeks and generally making a mess of things and it's really making me want to think about summer and think about walking and being outside. So what better way to do that than by talking about pilgrimage? And that's the goal of this podcast. It's to create a virtual albergue of sorts, a place where all of us who are drawn to pilgrimage, who've walked or are thinking about walking or just like the idea of it, can get together, share stories, talk about our experiences, and learn about some of the different pilgrimage routes out there. So we will talk about the Camino de Santiago specifically, and for those not aware, the Camino is generally thought of as one route, um, more technically the Camino Frances, which cuts across northern Spain, starting just on the French side of the Pyrenees in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, and then working through some big towns like Pamplona and Burgos and León, en route to Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain, one of three major traditional Catholic centers of pilgrimage, in large part because it's one of three places in the world believed to have the mortal remains of one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, along with Rome and Jerusalem. But there are many Caminos de Santiago. The route didn't just happen to start in the Pyrenees. It started at one's doorstep in the Middle Ages. And so while the Camino Frances has gathered a lot of attention over the years, there are many roads to Santiago de Compostela. And indeed, there are many pilgrimages, so we won't limit ourselves to the Camino. We'll talk about the emerging routes in Italy on the way to Rome, the roads to Jerusalem, and other major sites around the world. So we will cover many different countries and uh, routes uh, as we move through the podcast. My hope is to hear from experts Uh, academics who have studied this, religious experts who can speak more specifically to some of the theological issues involved with pilgrimage, to authors of personal accounts and guidebooks to the different routes along the way, to learn from them. And I also want to speak with recent pilgrims about their experiences, tales from the road, tales of personal struggle and transformation, reflections on what they got from pilgrimage. And, of course, we'll talk some very practical stuff. One of the most common issues to come up in conversations about pilgrimage is gear. What should you wear? What should you carry? And so we'll always spend a few minutes on, on the question of gear and the different preferences that are out there. It's important to keep in mind that everyone has personal preferences, and Everyone, in most cases, when they're talking about pilgrimage, is formulating their opinions from a sample of one, their own experience. But what you learn as you talk to more people is people approach the Camino with very different sets of gear, approaches to footwear, and I think it's worth hearing those perspectives so that you don't feel trapped by the strident views of the first person you speak with. My hope is to 
produce one episode per week on average. And uh, this will be contingent, of course, upon the interviews coming together and my own <laughs> life. And uh, I am a full-time teacher and administrator at a high school in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, and that, of course, takes up a lot of time. But I, I aspire to making this a weekly fixture so that you can count on it as you uh, think about your different podcast options for the week, you know, what you're going to listen to when you're not listening to Serial. In general, you can expect about one interview, one big interview, and two shorter conversations, but I imagine it will evolve over time as we move forward. This episode will be a little different. In general, I'll be facilitating discussion, asking a lot of questions, periodically offering some of my own stories and thoughts, but really I want to be a conduit for sharing the experiences of others. In this episode, though, I'll focus on myself and tell you about some of my experiences, my background as a pilgrim, so that you know who you're dealing with here. You know, hopefully this is the beginning of a relationship and one that is not exclusively one way. I hope that I will hear from many of you listening as we move forward and that there are some connections that form out of this. At the same time, I don't want to have it be the narcissism podcast. Um, so we'll limit it to the vanity hour today, and then moving forward, you can count on other perspectives. The production value will probably be low, but I'm happy to get feedback as we move forward. This is my first experience doing a podcast. It's an opportunity to stretch myself, to challenge myself to do something new, and, uh, and, and at the same time to be involved in pilgrimage even when I'm not walking or um, planning for my next trip. So, uh, so I look forward to it. So let's start by talking about my background. As I said, I'm a teacher from Portland, Oregon. My first pilgrimage was on the Camino Frances in 2002. And uh, this was my first year out of university. And I had been saving up for as long as I'd been working, which was really from about the age of 12 or 13 when I had a newspaper route and then I was working about 20 hours a week in high school and working full-time in university. And I'd been saving and saving and looking forward to getting out of the country and seeing the rest of the world. So when I first, my first traveling experience in that post-university year was kind of the stereotypical backpack and rail pass around Western Europe, spending a few days in a bunch of different locations, doing a lot of sightseeing. And it was great. It was um, a remarkable experience. I enjoyed it. But I also found that as the days passed, I was to some degree enjoying it less and less. And uh, I, I, I found myself hungry for maybe something more substantive or meaningful. And that might be a reflection of my own personal failings as a traveler, that I wasn't getting as deep as I would have liked as I was traveling around. But it was also reflective, I think, of some of the limitations of a sightseeing intensive experience, that it can be um, uh, almost like junk food, uh, delicious and great, but, you know, where's the where's the deeper value to it. At least that was my 
feeling at the end of a few months of doing that. And so as I was re returning home and thinking about what I would do next, what my next experience would be, I was spending a ton of time online, and this was still the relative early days of the internet and the relative early days of the Camino's resurgence. But eventually I stumbled across a message board where someone made a reference to their experience walking, and then I found the Confraternity of St. James in London that had a lot of information available on the route. And it very quickly hit me that this is what I was looking for, that this is what I needed to do. And uh, so I committed to it. I committed to it very quickly and almost impulsively. And then I, <laughs> then I realized what I had committed myself to. And, you know, I had hiked. I had gone on hikes before. But I'd never done anything especially ambitious. And I certainly wouldn't have characterized myself as, uh, as fit, as an accomplished hiker, and so this was going to be a physical challenge. This was going to be a stretch for me. And uh, while I had committed to it with absolute confidence, my follow-through on the pre-trip preparation was sorely lacking. And I think there were times where I found myself uh, intimidated by what was in front of me. And that intimidation translated itself into a sort of paralysis where I wasn't going out and just doing a little bit. I wasn't going out and just getting in five or six miles. I was instead thinking about how I really should be going out and doing 15 or 20 miles. And then that would freeze me. That would stop me in my tracks because that sounded really hard. And, uh, and so the reality was that as I headed off on my first pilgrimage in late April 2002, I was not physically prepared. And I was nervous. I was scared. I thought that after all of the big talking I'd done, all of the bold pronouncements I had made about how I was going to go walk across a country, and you know, this was largely unheard of at the time in, in USA, certainly within my circle, I was the first person that anyone knew who had taken anything on like this, and I had this, these thoughts running through my mind that, oh my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow it. I'm going to get there. I'm going to walk for a few days, I'm going to realize it's really hard, and I'm going to give up, and I'm going to fail, and I'm going to go home and have to face all of those people and wear my failure publicly. And that fear was on my mind every day, almost, when I was walking. Even down to the last few days of my first pilgrimage, I never totally believed that I would make it, that I would actually arrive in Santiago de Compostela. And so for me, arrival, on one hand, it was a triumph. But on the other hand, it was, um, it was a revelation. It was a revelation that I actually could do it. And when I look back at every subsequent pilgrimage, the most fundamental difference, yeah, I trained a lot harder. Yeah, I went into it with a much clearer understanding of what gear worked for me and what didn't. But the single biggest change was one of belief. It was mental. 
once I had accomplished it the first time, I knew I could do it again and again and again. And that was a liberating belief and a, a great source of confidence, both on the Camino and elsewhere. As I walked in 2002, I knew that moving forward, I was going to be a teacher, that that was my career. That's where I was headed. And I realized as I walked that the Camino, while generally an experience at the time for older people, people who were retiring or had the ability to take a longer break from work, it would also be an incredible experience for young people, an opportunity to unplug, to disconnect themselves from the grind of high school and the push towards college, and to have a chance for genuine self-reflection, for identity development, to think about where they were headed and why. And even before I finished, I knew that I wanted to return and I wanted to return with students. So as soon as I returned home, I devoted myself to that and I started reaching out to my, my old high school, to a former teacher, and, uh, and then I got their approval, I got the teacher to agree to go with me, and then I had to learn about how to create a business to be able to actually get these students on board, to, um, to pay for all of this stuff, to have insurance to make sure that I and the students were, were covered. There was a huge learning curve to figure out how on earth I was going to make this happen, but it, it, it all came together remarkably easily and seamlessly, and I, I benefited from the support of my, my, my teacher and mentor, John Bershey, and from the additional support when a, a second teacher, Sarah Gallagher, came on board. And somehow, incredibly, I managed to convince all of these kids and all of their parents to this ridiculous idea that we were all going to go to Spain together, the students and I and the teachers, not the parents, they stayed home. But we were going to go and we were going to walk 500 miles and we were going to do it. That They were going to make it. And we had our group, we had nine students, and we trained and we prepared and we went there and we made it. Um, it was incredible. And it set in motion a new direction in my life that, you know, a year before, two years before, I never would have imagined. And it has allowed me to make pilgrimage a central part of my life. And to have pilgrimage, even along the same routes, be constantly new. Because when you walk it with students, when you walk it with young people who are new to pilgrimage every single year, you really do get to re-experience it through their lens, through their perspectives. And that really deepens the experience. It doesn't become monotonous. It's never the same experience. So it's incredibly fortunate for me that things played out as they did. And so in 2005, 
We returned again to the Camino Frances in the same year in 2005. I took a group of students, many of whom had been on the Camino Frances with me the previous year, on the Via Francigena in Italy at a time when the route was only being recovered, only starting to be recovered. And uh, waymarks were exceptionally rare, and we got lost every day, and we saw only one other pilgrim the whole time. But it was exciting uh, and frustrating, but exciting to be pilgrims and pioneers and to get to see this route at a time when it was only starting to come back from uh, the, the, the dustbin of history. And then it, as the years have passed in the subsequent decade, I've returned again and again to pilgrimage. So I've had many walks with students. I've been fortunate enough to walk a number of different routes, so beyond the Camino Frances. I've been on the Norte and the Primitivo a handful of times, the Via Francigena a handful of times. Last summer, we walked the Le Puy route as a group. I've walked to Canterbury, to Nidoros in Norway. I've walked the Jesus Way in Israel and the Abraham Path through Palestine. It has been uh, an incredible set of experiences that has fundamentally changed who I am and has redefined my life. And I think one of the incredible things about the Camino is the, is the way it recasts and reframes so many of our relationships, our relationship with ourself. We have an opportunity to process experiences that we might not in the day-to-day reality of our normal lives. Uh, we have an opportunity to reconcile ourselves with things in our past that we aren't proud of, to make meaning out of difficult moments, to revel in great moments, you know, the experience of, of thinking about a great moment while you're walking and the way it makes everything feel so light. Um, it has the, the Camino has the power to recast our relationship with others. In part, this is a function of us coming to terms with our own stuff. It allows us to return home fresh, more buoyant, and committed to building healthy dynamics with the people around us. It changes our relationship with the land. When we go everywhere in cars, in trains, in buses, at high speed, land is something to be passed through. It is something that stands between where we are at the moment and where we really want to be. But instead on Camino, you have to make a much more positive relationship with the land. You can't think about it as an impediment. Instead, you start to appreciate all of the little things along the way. You start to see it differently and feel it differently. I think it makes us more patient, and for me certainly, it makes me appreciate just whatever you might see in a typical vista. I'm not waiting until the next postcard, but I can see the postcard in the normal. And that's uh, it's a beautiful thing. For those who are of faith, it is an incredible opportunity to deepen the relationship with God or with higher power. Um, 
And I think that builds out of being in nature, being with the land every day. And it's not something that ends when you arrive in Santiago or you get on the plane or you set your backpack down for the last time. It lingers and it lingers and it requires processing. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why there are so many books written and discussion boards online and forums are so active. And I also think it's why a a, a podcast can be so helpful because some of us are better off talking about things than simply writing about them or even listening to others instead of reading their own experiences. There's something about the human connection that can come through storytelling, talking out loud and listening. And I hope that this podcast offers that to some people. I want to tell three stories that stand in my memory for my own pilgrimages. And they are reflective of some of the great lessons that I've learned over the course of my time as a pilgrim. The first story comes from 2004. This was my first time leading a group of students on the Camino. We'd slept in Via Franca del Bierzo, and the next day we were walking to Osobrero. Now, most pilgrims choose between one of two routes to Osobrero. There's the low-level route that largely parallels the road, and it's the easiest option. It's generally flat until you get to the last 10 kilometers or so to Osobrero. But it follows the river, and it can be quite peaceful now that traffic has been diverted to a new superhighway. And there's some really lovely villages along the way, so it is appealing in its own way. Other pilgrims will fork up to the right from the valley and up through the hills. And this is a more demanding route, but it gets you away from the road for a while, and it uh, offers you some really gorgeous views in the mountains. But there's a third option. And in 2002, I tried to walk this alternate route. It goes through the village of Dragonte. It goes to the left of the valley. And I was drawn to it, in part because nobody seemed to be doing it. And it seemed like an opportunity to be alone, to have solitude, to see the mountains in a different way. And so I went for it. I walked up. The mountains, I found my way to the trail, I made it to Dragonte, and I was feeling really good. The way marks were limited. It was definitely not well marked. But I'd made it to that point, and I felt like things would be fine. Well, they weren't fine. Soon after, I made it to an intersection. It was a five-way intersection. There were no way marks. I had no idea which way to go. So I played it safe. I took the right fork, and I knew that it was generally moving downhill. It was moving back towards the valley. And so, worst case, I'd end up back on the main route. And that's exactly what happened. I ended up in Trabadelo, and, uh, you know, I wasn't happy about it. I ended up with a long detour 
And uh, so instead of going to Osobrero that day, I stopped in Vega de Valcarce. But it was it was good. It was uh, it was a good experience. But it made me determined in 2004 to conquer this route, to go back and find the correct way. And I'd read online that uh, a, a local pilgrim group had gone through the Durgonte route and had updated the waymarks. And so I felt like it was going to be okay. It was, it was really going to work this time. So I pitched it to the group and I asked if, if anyone wanted to try the high level route. And there were a lot of takers. So we decided to split. And we actually had each trip leader take a different route. So one followed the, the flat path along the river. One took the route to the right in the mountains. And then I took a group of five students on the Dragonte route. And all of those assurances about new waymarking, they were all wrong. There were no new waymarks. And indeed, the waymarks that had been there two years earlier had faded even further. But it was okay, again. We found our way to the trail in Via Franca del Bierzo. We made it up to Dragonte. And I was feeling pretty confident at this point. In fact, I was even a little cocky. I was bragging about how good my memory was and how I couldn't believe, you know, that I had remembered everything so clearly and things were going so smoothly. You know, I really did want to conquer this route and I felt like victory was at hand. This is a good example of hubris. We proceeded, and we got to that same intersection, and there were no waymarks. But this time was going to be different. I knew not to turn right. So we took the next fork over. I figured we'd just try to follow the line, the ridge line, and, and hopefully that would get us to the next village, San Fils de Seo. And then once we made it there, I figured things would be clear. It would be smooth sailing. Well, we walked for a while, and a while, and a while, and there was no village, and there were no waymarks, and I was getting a little nervous. But to our great fortune, or so we thought at the time, we saw a man. We saw a man to the right, about a hundred meters away. He was a farmer. He was out working the land. And so we felt like we were going to get the hope that we needed. I ran over to him. I pointed down the road. I asked, is this the way to San Fils de Seo? And he said, yes. Yes, it is. So I returned to the group and I, I I was happy, I was pleased. I said, we're good, we're right, we're doing everything fine. It's worth noting that that man, our miracle, he was dressed all in black. And he had a scythe, a scythe over his shoulder. And one of the lessons that we would ultimately take from this as we looked back on it later was, don't ever take advice or route instructions from a man who looks like death. That was a terrible idea. And indeed, it felt soon after 
like we were being led to our own demise. The trail faded away, and we were scrambling forward on what seemed to be a trailish sort of thing. And soon we were on the face of the hillside, and what could be construed as a trail could also be viewed as the remnants of a small landslide, but we figured, let's just get down to the lower elevation. It was workable, it wasn't dangerous, and we thought if we could just get down to the lower level, we would find a trail there, and we would be fine. It seemed like the safest option at the time. I should pause this narrative at this point and just announce to the world, I've become a much better trip leader over the years, <laughs> and this was a learning experience. So if anyone is hearing this and feeling like I should never be allowed to take young people out of the country, I have improved. Nonetheless, we descended the mountain, and we made it to the bottom, and we came into a field, and we eventually found a dirt road, and we followed that dirt road for a bit, and then, in the distance, we could hear an engine, and we realized that perhaps 300 meters away from us, there was a road, a paved road, now, between us and that road was a field and a river and a steep little hill, but we felt like it was worth it. It was worth crossing those obstacles. And so we did. We made it to the river, and we found a place that we could ford the river, and then we scaled our way up the steep little hill to the paved road, and now I was feeling really good. Now I felt like, you know, problems aside, we'd We'd made it, that it was going to be fine from here on. And when the next car came by, I flagged the car down, and I asked them, which way is it to Osobrero? And they pointed us one way, and so we were feeling good. We, we headed out, and we had confidence that we were moving in the right direction, and so we were following that road. And we kept going and going and going and that road just kept going, and the hours kept passing. And we started to realize that liberation was, was definitely not at hand. Fortunately, we arrived at a village eventually. It was not a village that was on my instruction list. It was definitely not a place we were supposed to be. Fortunately, we did get confirmation that Osobrero was in front of us. But it was still multiple hours away down the road. By this point, we had been walking for an incredibly long time. The rest of our group was worried about us. They had been in Osobrero for a while. There wasn't space in the albergue for us, so my co-leaders had run around and cobbled together rooms in different places to ensure that we'd have a place to sleep. But we were still hours away, and we were exhausted. It had been a strenuous day. It wasn't just the distance. It was the elevation. It was draining. But the kids were just so positive. Even one of the boys who had sprained his ankle earlier in the day, he was fine. He was making it. I was carrying such guilt at this moment. 
but they weren't criticizing me. They weren't making it personal. Everyone was just in the frame of mind of one step at a time, we'll get there, we'll keep going, and we'll make it. And eventually we did. Eventually we arrived in a sobrero, and my co-leaders were there to to greet us and to look very relieved that we were in fact alive. And then we all went to our different rooms and I remember taking off my socks and trying to wash them in the sink and they were they were filled with thistles and and other little spiky things that had grabbed on as we'd crossed through fields and other places we shouldn't have been walking on the hike. And I just remember as I tried with a great futility to clean out those socks, just feeling so ashamed. I was consumed by shame that I had put those kids at such risk, that I had jeopardized their Camino. They had worked so hard to make it as far as they did. And one foolish, stupid decision on my part to take the riskier option had put them all in a vulnerable situation. And I, I, that shame gnawed at me. And I went downstairs into the bar at the place we were staying. And I ordered a dinner because I had to eat. I was starving. I'd had a cliff bar that day and just about nothing else. There had been nowhere to buy food as we walked. And so I ate and I ate as fast as I could. And then I went straight back to the room. I just, I couldn't face anyone. All I could do was hope that we'd wake up the next morning and everyone would be fine. And if that were the case, then, then I could go forward. But if not, I, I think that guilt would, would, would carry forward with me for forever. And I was most concerned about the, the boy who'd sprained his ankle. The next morning, you know, we slept in a bit. And everyone woke up and came down and we had breakfast. And people were wiped out, you know? People were, were, were really sore. But they were also oddly chipper. And they were feeling some pride in what they'd done. No one knew how far we had walked. I later calculated that it was around 50 kilometers They just knew it was a lot. And they felt like they had faced the greatest physical challenge of their lives. Something that a few weeks earlier before we had started, they simply couldn't have done. And they did it. And they woke up the next morning and they were ready to walk. Even Eric, who sprained his ankle, was okay. It was not going to be the most enjoyable of walks, but... He knew he could manage it. He taped it. He was confident. And within a few days, the ankle was fine. And I was just astonished. 
I was so ready to spend the day not making eye contact with anyone. And instead, these students were just so uplifting in the way that they had rebounded, the way they had processed it. And that carried forward. You know, we affectionately dubbed it Hell Day. And as we arrived at the end of the trip and even looking back on it, they viewed it with such joy, really. It's not that it had been fun in the moment. It was exhausting. But the meaning that they derived from it was far greater than the discomfort. It was a transformative moment. That doesn't, (laughs) by the way, excuse the decision in my mind. I still regret the choice. I regret putting them at risk. But that's always been a lesson for me about pilgrimage. And it's stuck in my mind that when people ask our students about their experiences, they almost inevitably talk about the struggles They talk about the challenges. They talk about the moments of discomfort, the times when things went wrong. But these are stories of triumph and it recasts the negative into positives. It's a lesson of the power that we have in crafting our own narratives, in choosing how we remember these moments in our lives. And I think that's one of the great things that I've gotten from the Camino. Learning to see the challenges of the moment as future stories of triumph. My second story comes from 2008. I was walking in Norway on St. Olaf's Way, or the pilgrimage to Nidaros. It goes from Oslo to Trondheim. I'd started it in August. I finished it in September. Norway's a beautiful place, and the route is fairly rural. There aren't a lot of big places that you pass through along the way, and there were not many people walking it. So the vast majority of the time... I was alone, and I would go hours and hours without seeing anyone, without even passing through a village. So it was nice, it was also lonely. I'd been in contact with Ivan Luthen, who was responsible for waymarking much of the the route, for bringing it back, and and making it uh, uh, something that we could walk again. And I knew that he was also walking it at this time. He'd started a couple of weeks before me. He wasn't walking it alone, though. Ivan was walking with a group of prisoners, of individuals who were incarcerated in Norway. And they were walking with one warden. This was part of their sentence. They had applied to be able to embark on pilgrimage as part of their time served. Let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) A group of prisoners. 
And these individuals had been convicted of felonies. These were not minor crimes that they were associated with. They were walking with one warden. They weren't chained. They were in woods for hours and hours. My mind is immediately racing. Why would you do this? How could you do this? They could just run away. Is that safe? Putting these people out in the world when they had been convicted of such significant wrongdoings and they had not served all of their time. But I was also fascinated by the idea and I really wanted to see it. So I was, I was pushing the pace. I thought, you know, if I could maintain a particular pace for a while, that I would be able to catch them and I would be able to see it firsthand. And I just thought that would be great. That would be a, a great thing to see. So I did. I walked at a good pace. And every day I'd hear from someone that, Oh, there's a group that passed through here 10 days ago. Oh, it was a week ago. They weren't moving very quickly, and then it was a few days, and then it was just a day. They had been here yesterday. And then, finally, I arrived at uh, a, a home where the woman was making rooms available for people walking, and they were there. And we would all sleep in this home together, and we ate dinner together, and we ate breakfast together. So imagine I'm sitting at a dining table with one of those huge Norwegian smorgasbords spread out in front of me, and I'm sitting with a group of individuals conv convicted of felonies. And you know, they're asking, can you pass the butter? That sort of thing, you know? It's not, we're not, we're not talking about anything crime related. I certainly wasn't going to ask them what they had done. It was confounding in its normalcy. It was a dinner that you would have with any group of pilgrims. And I spoke with the, the warden for a little while and I spoke with Ivan for a while to get their thoughts on the experience. And one of the individuals who was incarcerated told me that Norwegian prison was just a very different beast from what I viewed prison as from an American perspective. In fact, he told me a story that, that he had been filmed um, as part of the documentary Sicko and the, that the, the film team had come to the island and they, so the, the, the prisoners, their prison was an island, an island off the coast of Norway. And so the, the film team had come to, to, to shoot and get the experience of what healthcare looked like for these prisoners in Norway. And at the end, end of it, they were told, 
well, this was great and it's really interesting, but we simply can't use this in the film because nobody at home would believe it. Now, the filmmaker was Michael Moore, and if you're familiar with Michael Moore, he's a really powerful filmmaker, but he has great comfort taking strident ideological positions. He's not one who backs away from unusual material. And so if Michael Moore felt like, wow, this just is not believable, (laughs) then it really must have been unbelievable. And from an American perspective, it kind of is. This idea that we would view pilgrimage as an acceptable activity for individuals convicted of felonies. But I thought about it. I thought about it a lot. And I thought about how, what an incredible opportunity to reflect and rehabilitate. And if that's the goal, ultimately, is to help individuals who've made poor choices, who have harmed others, to reflect, to grow, become better people, and hopefully as a result, be able to reintegrate and be productive and lawful members of society, then isn't this a great idea? Shouldn't we have more individuals coming out of prison and going on pilgrimage? And, uh, and so it was, it was a liberating experience for me, at least in terms of how I thought about crime and about prisoners. And uh, as luck had it, I ended up encountering the group in Trondheim as they were headed to a final mass in the Nidaros Cathedral. And so I tagged along. I, I followed them in and we went up a, a side staircase into a small uh, chapel on the second floor of the cathedral. And mass was celebrated for these individuals. And it was exceptionally moving. And I found myself thinking about how, how for me, the completion of a pilgrimage is always melancholy. It is um, exciting to accomplish the completion of the pilgrimage. But it's also deeply saddening to have it be over. But for me, I go back to normal life. I go back to a job that I like, to uh, a comfortable home. For these individuals, they were going back to prison. And what a thought to have just spent a month hiking, being out in the world, and to know that you're going back. Um, So it was a moving experience and a great lesson to think differently about people who I would more traditionally look at with scorn and to think differently about what justice is and what punishment should look like. 
My third story comes from the next year, 2009. I was on the Via Francigena in Italy, and I had a long walk that day. I'd woken up in San Miniato Basso, so this is in northern Tuscany, and I was walking to San Gimignano, a beautiful hill town close to Siena and Florence, one of those classic Tuscan hill towns with a bunch of towers and just a spectacular place. And I'd arranged to sleep in the Augustinian monastery inside the town walls. I'd written, I'd gotten confirmation that it was a go, and I was looking forward to it. So I arrived in San Gimignano, I arrived at the monastery, and I walked inside, and in the cloister there was a a small gift shop, and that's where I found one of the monks. And I told him that I was a pilgrim, and that I had arranged to sleep there. And the monk, he was Scottish, said to me, do you have any proof that you are a pilgrim? And I said, yes, absolutely. And I took out my credential, and I opened it up, and I showed the stamps, and I just waited for him to look at it, to stamp it with... Uh, the Augustinian stamp, and then take me back to wherever the rooms were. And instead, he looked at it very briefly, just a cursory glance, and then he looked back at me, and he said, this is not proof of pilgrimage. I said, what? He said, this is only proof that you've walked. It doesn't prove that you are a pilgrim. And that stopped me dead in my tracks. That had always been all the proof that I'd needed. I had walked. I had gotten the stamps. That was proof. But he wanted a letter. He wanted an introduction from my priest, from my church at home to show that I wasn't just walking but that I was engaged in pilgrimage in the spiritual sense of the term. It wasn't enough just to be a walker. Well, I didn't have that letter. And I'm not religious. I appreciate the spirituality of pilgrimage. It's meaningful to me. I make an effort to visit the churches along the way to attend masses periodically. I have respect for that. But I don't have belief. And so I certainly didn't have a letter. Now it's worth noting that in the early years of the recovery of the Camino de Santiago in Spain, there was a woman in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port who was the keeper of credentials. And she was known for taking this kind of stance, for being quite tight-fisted with those credentials, for demanding proof and looking at your evidence quite skeptically. If you read any early narratives of the Camino, 
early in terms of the rebirth in the 1980s and 90s, you'll see these encounters, the fear that this woman inspired. And I felt that fear here. I thought, oh my gosh, I am going to be kicked out. I am going to have nowhere to stay in San Gimignano. I am going to be on the street, exhausted. All I want to do is shower and lie down, and instead I'm going to be cut adrift. And at the same time, I'm going to have this, God, almost an existential crisis. Like, am I not a pilgrim? Have I been lying to myself? And then at that moment, Father Brian walked in. Brian is an Augustinian monk from America, and he's the person who I had corresponded with, and he recognized me uh, based on the conversation and stepped in and immediately noted that this had been cleared, that I was good to stay there. And the Scottish brother walked away and left me in Brian's hands, and um, I didn't see him again. And Brian took care of me, you know, he took me to the room, he made me feel quite welcome, and he even offered to share dinner with me. He had some leftovers, and so we met in the monastery's refectory and, and ate and talked for a couple of hours, and it was one of the great moments I've had on pilgrimage, having this opportunity to speak with a, an American monk living on a pilgrimage route in a monastery and share experiences and ideas about pilgrimage and to talk about this interaction that I had with the Scottish monk and to talk through the legitimacy or lack of legitimacy of non-Catholic pilgrims or walkers, as the case may be, utilizing pilgrim infrastructure along the pilgrim roads. And, of course, I argued that non-religious people should be able to use those facilities. And beyond the self-serving aspect of that argument, I felt quite genuinely that one of the best advertisements for Catholicism, for belief in Christianity, for religion, is the Camino, is pilgrimage, in the sense that the experiences that you have with people on pilgrimage are consistently among the best that you have over the course of your life. One of the great takeaways that my students have gotten from walking on pilgrimage is a belief in the goodness of people, and it's something that they doubted. But almost all of us who've walked can look back on Camino miracles, on those Camino moments where just out of nowhere, someone is kind, someone offers you spontaneously the help that you needed, it makes you feel very good about your fellow man and woman. And at the same time, you're out in the world, you're out in nature, you're constantly reminded of what a gloriously beautiful world we live in. 
And so if you are inclined at all to believe in a higher power, to believe in a moral set of guidelines, in a set of religious guidelines that call for decency in the way that we behave towards ourselves and others, the Camino will lead you down that road. And again, that's not where it has taken me. It has certainly allowed me to think about it in far more positive terms than I did when I was young and more judgmental. And so I spoke with Brian about this, and I talked about how it was wonderful for Catholics to be able to make a Catholic pilgrimage and to experience their religion in those terms. But it was also exceptionally important for non-Catholics, for non-religious people, to see religion in this light, to live it. And to my relief, Brian acknowledged the legitimacy of those arguments. Even if he hadn't, I think I'd still be walking. But it was nice to hear someone from that lifestyle, from that career, from that approach to life also see it in those terms. And I've carried that forward. I've always believed that when working with students, most of the students who I walk with are not religious, that it's important to remind them that to be a pilgrim, they do have to engage with the religion, with the spirituality of the root. It's part of the experience. And I think it's important that we all do that. So those are three of my stories. What are yours? The goal of this podcast is to document and share the stories of today's pilgrims, to talk through our experiences, to process, to commemorate, and to inspire the next set of pilgrims going out. As I said at the beginning, other episodes won't be like this. This is the vanity hour. Moving forward, we'll focus on the stories, the experiences, the ideas of others. The second episode, you'll hear from the board chair of the American Pilgrims on the Camino, Cheryl Grassmoen. You'll hear from Steve Watkins of Jonesboro, Arkansas, who recently completed his first pilgrimage on the Camino Frances. And you'll hear Christina Collins from Williamsburg, Virginia, talk about her favorite piece of gear. In episode three, we'll hear from the Reverend Sandy Brown, who just published a guidebook to the way of St. Francis in Italy. We'll hear from Zena Bell on her insights into a particularly significant piece of gear. And we'll hear from one of my own students and her experience on the the Lupuy route over the summer. So those are the first two episodes. They're all coming out at the same time that this episode's released. And then moving forward, you can expect content on a weekly basis. Please get in touch. If you have feedback, 
if you have ideas, if you'd like to be involved. You can write to me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. You can always find these podcasts on SoundCloud. We'll get them up on iTunes. And they'll always be linked as well on the website for my guidebook to the Camino del Norte, Camino Primitivo, and Camino Inglés. That's northerncaminos.com. And on my personal website, Dave Whitson, W-H-I-T-S-O-N.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you'll continue to listen as we move forward. Take care.